if you don't have a data scientist supporting your outbound muscle, I doubt you are data-driven to the extent you think you are. From Dogpatch Advisors, it's Ground Truth, a podcast about company builders, leadership, and how operators use data to build the future of sales. This is the second half of Ground Truth's two-part interview with Jean DeWitt, the head of North America Revenue and Growth at Stripe. In part one, Jean shared her journey from cold-calling prospects out of a phone book all the way to Google, where she would eventually lead the company's sales efforts in the Americas. Along the way, she acquired the building blocks she would need to ultimately build a revolutionary data-driven sales machine at Stripe. In this episode, she peels back the curtains and gives some insight on how it all works. When she first arrived at Stripe in 2016, Jean described the sales organization as a bit like the Wild West. She inherited a team of incredibly smart problem solvers, but many had very little sales experience. Inbound demand was exploding, and what little sales process there was mostly consisted of emails. Over her first 60 days at Stripe, Jean says she rolled up her sleeves and essentially worked as an account executive, making deals with customers on her own. She was searching for what worked what could become a repeatable process. By the end of her first two quarters, she had zeroed in on how she could forecast that process and make it more predictable. So you're looking at pulling these levers that you can pull, and and it sounds like your team is overwhelmed with inbound to start, partially due to process. Tell us about the transition into adding these different levers and, and how outbound ultimately, why did that end up becoming a focus or how did that end up becoming a focus when you have so much inbound and the team is overwhelmed just following up with demand. Yeah, so despite having this luxury of inbound demand, what became clear to me pretty quickly was two things. One, the company had such high growth aspirations that we actually weren't going to be able to grow at the rate that we wanted to by only relying on inbound demand. And also as a lot of people are familiar, inbound demand has a tendency to be from smaller companies. And we were going to need to start slowly marching up market. At the time, we were mostly serving a Series A company, maybe a Series B. And so we needed to be able to get a couple of these. I dubbed them buffaloes at the time. So you needed a a large animal that was explicitly (laughs) not a whale to make the point that we are not going whale hunting. We're not pursuing enterprise. There's no way we have product market fit there at this point. But we need to get a larger animal than these little deals that we were doing today. So that was sort of what kicked it off was we had the buffalo strategy and then we need to do more pipeline generation. Tell us what told you that we could get these buffaloes. If the demand is telling us maybe a smaller animal and maybe not whales, what was was telling you the buffalo's time? It's not plural, but oh man, inside family joke. I like tend to always put an S at the end of plural animal words. But anyway, (laughs) so we were getting a couple at-bats with these buffaloes. So one of them I remember was TaskRabbit. And I remember this because the guy who went on to be our top enterprise rep and then ultimately the founding manager of our enterprise sales team, we got in a 45-minute long lunch debate 
because he was negotiating the Task Rabbit deal, which at that time would have been one of our biggest deals, and wanted to do the contract negotiation over email because that was more efficient, which I thought perhaps he should go in person and talk to the CFO. <laughs> so so anyway, we're you know, we're getting some of those at bats and we're winning them, which tells you, hey, if we got more of these, we probably could win more, but you're just not organically getting them inbound. So we're gonna have to go out and get them. And so we started probably how like any typical sales organization starts, which is tell your AEs to do prospecting, (laughs) which all of us have been salespeople. AEs don't really love. So then we said, all right, we'll tell our AEs to do prospecting by locking them in a room and providing dobies, which are chocolate chip cookies for folks not from San Francisco. (laughs) So good. So that was our process for a while was basically lock people in a room for two hours every Friday and force everyone to go prospect. So that clearly was not scaling. And the other thing at play was Stripe was still getting comfortable with sales. And in particular, was very nervous about outbound prospecting because all of us who have been on the other end of a prospecting email that isn't well done, it's spammy and it's very destructive to your brand. And so there were very real concerns at the company about whether we should do prospecting at all. And combining that with the fact that at the time, Stripe was predominantly selling to developers, which as a constituent are even less interested in receiving outbound emails. And so we just knew we were going to have to both to get this accepted at Stripe and to do it in a way that protected the Stripe brand. We were going to have to approach outbound really differently. This new approach would be one that saw Gene working closely with Stripe's founders, brothers John and Patrick Collison. The first focus was on content. She and her team developed a basic design principle with a very simple premise. If a prospect forwarded any single email or piece of content to John and Patrick, would her team be able to stand behind it? And so we actually spent a bunch of time before we ever kicked off really meaningful outbound brainstorming a set of design principles and a guidebook for what needed to be true about outbound at Stripe to uphold a bar that we felt was aligned with our brand. And one of the sort of cornerstones of that was that we wanted the prospect to feel that they had learned something and were better off for having gotten an email from Stripe, regardless of whether or not they decided to engage. And so we spent a bunch of time on these principles, and then we actually, like, workshopped them with John and Patrick. Because the thing I've always loved about working with John and Patrick is they are so user-oriented, and they are very ingrained in sales and what we do. And so got them on board with our principles. And then when we started doing content, we actually would work with John to edit them with him. And we, we also explicitly were not prospecting to developers. So we would prospect to business decision makers. And so that was really kind of how we first got more comfortable that, yes, we are going to do something that we think is good for Stripe overall. And go back to that. Your founders are involved with Outbound. This is an engineering-driven company, maybe not standard. What was that like, having the founders very involved with Outbound? I loved it. Having your founders involved is a blessing, right? I can't think of any sales leader that wouldn't want their founders to care deeply, so deeply that they will read individual sentences about the work that you are doing. And John and Patrick just have a brilliant sense for the type of customer we were pursuing. So you also, I think I better 
grokked actually what would be relevant to those companies in working through the content with John and Patrick. And they hold a really high bar. So you always just left those types of meetings better than you went in. And and so you sort of have aligned internally around how you want to go ahead and approach outbound. As you thought about what Stripe wanted to do differently as compared to other companies and other operators that maybe you had talked to about it, what were some of the things you knew, the pitfalls or the sort of things that you knew you wanted to avoid when you embarked on this journey? Yeah. So the next challenge we were going to have was Stripe has an operating principle, which is Stripe's see efficiency as leverage. And what that translates to is typically you don't have a ton of headcount. <laughs> and so if you look at your sort of typical outbound models, it's often some ratio of SDRs to AEs. And I just knew that there was no world that I was ever going to get enough SDRs to have an SDR to AE ratio that would support a typical outbound model that is very human-driven. So that was sort of the first challenge was how are we going to do this differently to operate at an order of magnitude more efficiency than a typical outbound team? The second one sort of relates to the last discussion we were having, which was we also really needed to control the messaging to ensure that we were going to be on brand. So a lot of companies will hire SDRs and be like, great, here, SDR number one, here is your 200 accounts please go contact them. And maybe you have some messaging playbooks to draw on, but you have a, a lot of latitude in what you can put in that email, which we were not particularly comfortable with. And so the sort of challenge number two was, how do you ensure messaging consistency while also ensuring relevance and personalization? And then the last, I would say, was Stripe is also... Another operating principle of ours is reason clearly. It's a very analytical, sort of rigorous thinking culture. And so we also needed to be in a place where we could be very hypothesis-driven, do a lot of A-B testing, and be able to continue to explain the ROI of what we were doing such that people would continue to make an investment in this function. And talk about the difference in this function and maybe... The difference in a typical outbound model, like you described, normally they're crafting their own messaging, which you, you want to make sure to control. Stripe has a very specific brand. And often what they're doing is also deciding when and, and who to reach out to. So how did you think about solving those problems if we're going to have a different model? How did that change your approach? So the first change of the approach was you just have to be much more data-driven. So how you think about the market and which prospects to pursue, we felt could be done via smarter data science-driven model than sort of your typical heuristics. And the other thing about Stripe is you're selling an API. So you actually have a relatively specific set of companies that are going to be relevant to you. And they're going to use the product in very specific ways based on their business model. So that was sort of the first thing was basically we were going to need to have a lot of data to understand what are the right companies to pursue. And by data, I mean publicly available data, like what's the industry this company is in? What's the business model? How many employees does it have? All What are other attributes of it? But to use that to identify who to pursue and then combine that also with any sort of signal data that you could get on is now the moment to engage with them so that, again, you can be efficient and relevant to them. 
So that was sort of the first part was basically to put data at the forefront. And actually, we kicked off the whole thing by being able to convince the data science team to be our business partners. I basically said, look, I can't get this off the ground without a data scientist. And fortunately, people agreed. (laughs) (laughs) How did you convince them? It took a bit. Kate, a woman on my team who helped me get it off the ground as well, we wrote a memo to basically outline what we called the company universe, which was this concept that we thought that you could, if you visualize a massive database, basically every company in the universe will be a row. And then you would have one to N columns. And each of those columns would be an attribute of that company. And those attributes would help you figure out whether they were relevant to talk to right now and what you might want to talk to them about. And so we put that together and people sort of got the vision, but I would not say got the momentum I was looking for. So then Kate and I retrenched and we're like, all right, so we're going to expand the relevance of our company universe. And so then we thought through, actually, if you were to build this, what are all the other use cases that the company might want to employ our company universe for? So examples of that could be you're debating whether or not to launch your new product, right? Now you can sort of figure out how many companies in the universe might this be relevant for. Or as Stripe's user base gets larger and we want to do more customer marketing, now you'd have a better way of identifying who within your install base might be most relevant for another product. We came up with about six different use cases that we thought we could use across the company. And then I think people found it a little bit more compelling. And so... We kicked off the project, which was internally named Rosalind, who is a female scientist that mapped the first, I think if I get this right, I think she mapped the human DNA first. And so she was our patron saint of the company universe. (laughs) (laughs) And and you mentioned this term relevance a couple of times. I think often when people in the industry are talking about outbound prospecting or sales motion, they often talk about personalization. And they often conflate those two concepts. How do you think about the difference between relevance and personalization and how this sort of data clearinghouse would power some of that? Yeah, your typical personalization that I see all the time that drives me crazy is like, oh, I went to Duke, you went to Duke. Let's talk about this SaaS software, you know, or you were an athlete, I was an athlete. Like, And that is not why I'm going to buy. It's right. great that we ha- are in the same alumni community, but like, let's go get a coffee. You're probably getting a lot of, <laughs> how about Zion these days, yeah, right? Yeah. So that, to me, it's not useful, right? You are not better for having read that introductory sentence. Relevance is about how do I identify what are likely business problems you are having and talk to you about them in a way that either gives you information you didn't have, helps you think differently about the problem, or piques your interest that I might have a solution. One of the problems that I remember you identifying early in this process is there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and not very clear information about which vendors have which data in which geographies, at which fill rates, sort of where do we go to find all this data? How did you end up thinking about that and sort of solving the problem of of where to source this public data? Yes, it's a huge problem. You have a ton of data vendors out there. And the other thing about this, right, is like, it can end up being expensive. So we wanted to be smart about, are we purchasing data that ultimately is augmenting this universe in a way that makes it more useful? 
And so what we ended up doing was actually, we worked with Dogpatch, you guys were super helpful, (laughs) and analyzed 25, I think it was, data vendors. And so basically we would look across them with our data science team and figure out what was their fill rate, what was the accuracy, when you had two data sets, to what degree did they overlap, because you don't sort of want to pay duplicatively. And basically from there, we're able to pick a subset of these vendors that had sort of the most robust, relevant, and accurate data. And the problem is an order of magnitude harder when you also want to do this globally. So data is decent in the United States and sort of less so once you move out of there. So there was also a fair amount of work to get good data sources outside of the U.S. And then there were also places where you just couldn't get good enough data. And so we did some interesting things with vendors to manually fill data in ways that we could then train data science models. The data science team began developing models to better understand their market. And while there was more data available than ever, acquiring raw data was just the first step. And so the marketplace tag by itself will not result in you being able to send relevant content. You actually had to do data science manipulation to figure out the marketplace tag when also in the presence of tags 1, 5, and 7 means that this is a marketplace that could utilize our Connect product but in the absence of those other attributes, actually just means it's a vanilla e-commerce site. So that's also been a major piece of work with our data science team is how do you interpret the data in a way that is specific to your business model. Are any of your peers at other companies, are you aware of anyone else putting this level of resource to this problem? So we were doing some things like this at Google. Like I mentioned, we had a couple PhDs working with us as well. We didn't have sort of the same, at the time I was there, so this is six plus years dated, but we weren't doing the same with the the data sources, but we were doing pretty sophisticated statistical modeling on trying to figure out what attributes were predictive of being likely to buy. So that part is similar to what we're doing here at Stripe. I will say like one of the challenges is, if I reflect on this, I do think you have to be a company that's operating at a certain scale for this type of investment to make sense. I'm not sure... I could have done this entire thing while at Dialpad (laughs) because you just need scale to make it really work well. So I think most people aren't really thinking about it this way. And then I also think you sort of have to figure out when it's the right moment for your company to pursue it. So you have all this analysis you've done. You've sourced data from certain vendors. There's certain internal data that you have access to. How did you think about utilization, sort of having this data inform who you reach out to and and what you talk to them about. Yeah, so basically what we end up doing is the data science team will effectively pluck diamonds from the rough and say, these are companies that we think are interesting based on our model, and this is why we thought they were interesting. So then they can get fed, and here's the other thing that's interesting that we do here, is we have really strong alignment between the sales and the marketing team. So those same companies will go both to our marketing team as well as to sales. So marketing will use them for account-based marketing on LinkedIn, as an example, and provide broader air cover from an advertising perspective, while we go and pursue them from an outbound perspective. And so then you're able to use those attributes that are why the data science team picked those companies to formulate relevant messages, sort of knowing, okay, hey, they're this industry, so likely here are some of the reference customers that would be most relevant to them. 
they're this type of business model. So these are the challenges they're probably struggling with. And so then you can basically, to a certain extent, kind of autofill those types of things into content, which is, again, how we maintain a high content bar. And then have your outbound team further customized by understanding anything else that you might find by looking at the company and also effectively QAing and making sure that you're not just going to go send something that isn't high quality. So data science is coming up with these models. What are some of the things that come together that are allowing you to be really relevant in the messaging? So a really good example of this would be one of the things Stripe is really good at is helping companies expand internationally. And you can look at Alexa data to understand when a company's website traffic is changing. And maybe they used to be getting predominantly U.S. traffic, and now they're getting a ton out of Europe. And so either maybe that's indicative of they already are planning to move there, or they should be thinking about it. Or even if they're not, maybe they should be thinking about adding relevant currencies. So with that, we're then able to reach out to companies and suggest things around international expansion. We have a bunch of content that we prepared as an example around local payment methods, which a lot of American companies, as an example, are undereducated in. How do you think about maintaining the authenticity or maintaining Stripe's brand voice as the team is starting to grow, as the ways we're identifying are start to grow? Tell us more about that. We've done a couple things. The two big ones One's not rocket science. I think a bunch of folks do this, but we do maintain a library of all of the approved and most relevant content that's the highest performing. If someone wants to come up with a new campaign, they often start there and will use that as a template to tweak from. We also actually, the way we think about campaigns is sort of in two buckets. One, which I'll call evergreen, and then one is sort of what I would call topical or timely Evergreen is something that will always likely be useful. It's sort of more business model driven. And so there we can constantly tweak messaging. We have new content that we'll use, but you can sort of run those. And as we find new companies that fit that business model, you've got an existing campaign. And then your topical and timely is more specific to something happening. Might be retail companies gearing up to ensure that they will be reliable going into Cyber Monday. Or Europe is changing the regulatory landscape and introducing strong customer authentication. And how are you going to think about re-architecting your payment flow? So that's sort of the other one where you would have more fixed campaign that often is also very well integrated with marketing. Bucket one is we have this library and that is audited by a, a set of folks from a content perspective. The other thing that we do is we have campaign committee. Campaign committee brings together all of the different cross-functional counterparts, which is sales, data science, marketing, and then marketing ops and sales ops. And when we want to launch new, more meaningful campaigns, we'll review them there to, again, make sure we're all aligned on the content messaging and brainstorm whether or not there are other assets that marketing could develop or we could work on together to support that campaign. So an example of that might be we had seen some really interesting research that had been done about uh, checkout form optimization and that the bulk of e-com sites out there actually have very under-optimized checkout flows. We thought that that could be relevant to retail companies who are gearing up for Cyber Monday sales. We worked actually with marketing and with another firm to go and analyze 
manually for this campaign a bunch of checkout forms for the top retail prospects that we have to figure out of the 20 things that one should do that are best practice. Were they doing 20? Were they doing 18? Were they doing five? And then be able to send them a custom analysis, which is, hey, your site appears to be or your checkout form appears to be 67% optimized. And by the way, here's some content that explains how best to do this. And if you'd like to have a conversation to review your results in more detail, we're happy to chat. As you started to scale, how did you think about maintaining the authenticity that's probably really key for making this work at Stripe? What we've done is have a lot of interplay between the different functions. So we'll take the folks that are the best salespeople, the best outbound folks, and spend a bunch of time asking them what their hypotheses are, what's working, what are patterns they're seeing. And then similarly, slightly, but from a workflow perspective, we actually will have the data science team come and literally look over the shoulder of an outbound business associate while doing their job to figure out what actually is happening inside their head. So they get this data dump from the data science team. What are they actually doing to further manipulate it? And what does that teach you about how to then feed that data back into the model? So I think there are a bunch of things that we're doing here. So one is, it's very fluid between the different teams. We'll do a bunch of ideation together, right? Some campaigns are sales-driven. Some campaigns are outbound-driven. Some campaigns are marketing-driven. And then we always figure out wherever it came from, okay, how do you augment it with the other parts? And that's where campaign committee comes in. And then the other is this sort of closed loop, basically, which is in data science, data science might produce hypotheses around, we think these accounts are interesting and here's why. They'll feed them to OBAs. OBAs will accept or reject them and explain why they did that. That gets fed into the model. Similarly, you can have campaign or companies generated from the outbound team, which is they will say, oh, we know that sales has been doing really well with prop tech companies recently. Let's go into the company universe and see how many other prop tech companies exist that we can then use the value prop or the set of questions that have been working for the deals we've just won. And then again, if that works, you sort of refeed the model. And now the model will be like, all right, well, what companies have dynamics that are similar to a prop tech company, but aren't prop tech. So that's sort of the other thing that I think is just closed loop and then this very cross-functional but well-integrated team. What are some of the other maybe unanticipated learnings that came out of this? I think it's actually helped our sales organization get better overall because everyone has to be better at articulating why something's working so that it can be repeated. Account executives have to be really good at understanding why they think a certain type of company is interesting or why they think a certain way to engage with a company is interesting so that they can then explain it to folks on the outbound team who haven't sold that, who can explain it to marketers, who then we can all think about this integrated campaign. I feel like it's actually helped us get a lot crisper about where we think we can and do win and why. It's also really brought the teams together more. There's a lot of collaboration and coaching that happens between the outbound team and the A's and vice versa. And unlike other sales organizations, we always look to graduate folks from one segment into another. That's been the other big insight is just the thirst of our our outbound team to learn about actually what really, really works when you sell 
We do all these brunch and learns, a lot of ride alongs, a lot of being involved in the sales process so that our outbound team then gets a lot more context on what happens downstream of them and then is also better prepared to one day become an account executive themselves. What is the impact of that when you promote these people out of these roles where they're not selling, but now they are? How does how does their progression compare to maybe other teams you've run? Oh, totally shrinks ramp time. Time to productivity is so much faster. Stripe is a very complicated product in general. And then on top of that, you're selling an API, which for an account executive is a little bit like an intangible good. It's not like a SaaS app that I can touch and feel. You have folks that already really understand the product. They understand certain types of users. And so now they just actually have to learn the next set of sales skills versus needing to learn Stripe, needing to learn the customer base they're going to go approach, et cetera. I think a lot of the listeners out there will say, you've done this amazingly comprehensive process of building this data clearinghouse to feed the model, having data scientists manage it, figure out how to plug the humans into it, how to generate relevant content. I think a lot of people will think you've reached the holy grail. That's not exactly how Stripe probably sees the world. Where are you going with this? Where do you think is the future of data-driven sales for Stripe? Yeah, we certainly haven't won yet. I will say that. We continue to figure out how do you be more effective at this only really will be optimal when you perfectly master the interplay between data and humans. And that is a constant learning process. And we are not there yet. To me, it's just through this constant iteration, running tight sprints, experimenting, getting type feedback loops, having the data continue to inform your hypotheses and feedback loops. We'll be at this forever. And then once you master it, in theory, right, for a product, Stripe will launch a new product. And now you've got to figure out what that changes about the personas you pursue, the value prop, like what that will change about the content. And then on top of that, we've now been able to start thinking about how we apply this elsewhere. We originally kicked off our outbound work to support what we call the growth segment, which is sort of loosely a mid-market segment and have since worked to scale this into the startup segment. And so you you make changes to the process there. We're trying to figure out how you scale it into an enterprise segment where it's going to need to look different. And then as Stripe has a bunch of different products, terminal, billing, radar, et cetera, to sell, how do you also potentially scale this into your existing customer base to help identify folks that might not be aware of some other thing that we could be helping them with? So that's the next horizon for us on a lot of this is how do you take it from the one specific use case that we started with and expand it to being relevant for anybody on any topic that we would want to engage in. Where do you think outside of Stripe, let's say, where do you think the whole world of data and go to market is going if we sort of play it out five or 10 years? Yeah, I think people always drives me crazy a little bit, but talk about sales as this art. And I think any good sales leader will tell you it is an art and a science. And I think if you look back 10 years and you ask, or 20 years, or you know, pick your time frame, what was the mix, the relative mix of art and science? It might have been 70% art, 30% science. And by art, I would mean sales skills, the way that you're interacting with humans, science being the data side of things. And I think that's increasingly tipping more towards data. I don't ever think the human element gets removed at all. People are making major business decisions that impact the overall company performance. So you you need the human connection part of that. But I think that the human, the sort of art side, will be increasingly effective by 
the use of data to inform strategy and, and engagement. And how do you see it changing or how would you change? You're still Gene, but you've had a number of different roles at different stages of companies, stages of products going to market. If you knew what you knew now and had the tools that are available now, not just a phone book and a phone, how would you maybe approach some of the challenges that you'd faced in the past? How would you maybe approach those differently now with what you've learned here? I think my biggest thing is to always start with a hypothesis. If I go all the way back to that software accounting company, I started with an accountant with the last name that started with an A. (laughs) Work down the list. (laughs) Versus now in everything that we do, whether it is one specific campaign to a type of target customers or a question as Stripe has become much more of an enterprise-oriented company on as you move up market, where within that market should you focus? We always try to start with a well-articulated hypothesis that you can then go prove or disprove. So yeah, I'll take so that t- one back. T- turns out you couldn't sort that phone book by <laughs> processing volume. Yeah, right? not quite. Right. <laughs> That's Jean DeWitt. It's funny to think about how Jean's career has been constantly marked by the juxtaposition between data and the human element of sales. It was during her phone book days in North Carolina that she first started wondering if maybe there was a better way. At Google, she was forced to debate her position on its freemium model for small businesses, even though the data showed she was right. And now at Stripe, she's building a system that is almost seamlessly integrating both the art and the science of sales. And she's not done. Jean says the next step for Stripe is a push in 2020 to move up market. Jean and the company have spent the last several years proving they are enterprise ready. And in 2020, they plan to continue to invest in new products and in scaling their enterprise business. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Clearbit. Clearbit is a marketing data engine that helps you deeply understand your customers and build a hyper-efficient growth engine. We've known the team at Clearbit for about four years now and use Clearbit data for all our own projects. Just about all of our customers rely on Clearbit data to cut through the noise and focus their go-to-market teams. We've seen so many examples of Clearbit really helping their customers better understand their sales and marketing funnel. And some of their customers are able to get really creative with their sales plays. For example, we worked with Segment, one of the world's leading customer data platforms. They're using everything from Clearbit Reveal to understand which companies are on their site from anonymous traffic, Clearbit Technographics to understand their technology profile and how good of a fit they would be for Segment, and Clearbit Prospector to identify the ideal contacts at each company. Thank you to Clearbit for sponsoring this episode. To learn more about Clearbit, visit clearbit.com. Thanks for joining us. To learn more, check out groundtruthpod.com for other Ground Truth episodes and a deeper dive into each story. Ground Truth is a production of Dogpatch Advisors, written by Jack Buer from Campfire Labs, sound engineering and studio space provided by TJ Bonaventura and Julian Lewis from StudioPod, Editing and mixing by Jorge Gonzalez from Noda Lab and video production by Nick Shaheen from Above Treeline Studios.